There's research showing that time of day effects explain about 20% of the variance in how people perform on these workplace tasks. So that's a big deal. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. William Penn once said, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. Our guest today, Daniel Pink, knows a lot about time, specifically timing. In his new book, When, which is already a New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller, Daniel takes a deep dive into the concept of timing and how we can better use it to perform at a high level in our lives, in our work, and in our decision making. In addition to distilling cutting-edge research and data on timing and writing in a way that will likely change most people's understanding of how it affects their life, Dan is also the author of several other New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling books, including Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Monday. Welcome. Excited to have you join the Elevate podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Now, before we talk about when and your research on timing, I just wanted to share that your book Drive had a deep influence on me and how uh, we decided to build our culture at Acceleration Partners, specifically our focus on flexibility and capacity building. I really think it's a book every founder should read as they decide how they want to build their business and culture. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I'm talking to you from my office, which is the garage behind my house here in Washington, D.C., so... It's nice to know that the things that, that fly out of here every once in a while land and have an effect. You've kept me in the writing business for maybe two additional weeks. They've had an impact for sure. And, and you know, that leads to my first question is, I, I'm actually curious, what gave you the drive to write Drive? That book came out of just some curiosity based on a previous book that I'd written. I wrote a book called A Whole New Mind, which makes the argument that we're shifting the set of skills that are necessary in the economy today are shifting from... Uh, these more reductive uh, SAT spreadsheet kinds of abilities to the less reductive, less algorithmic, artistic, empathic, big picture skills. And in response to that book, I got a lot of email from people saying, hey, if this is right, how do we create organizations that foster these things? How do we at some level motivate people to do that kind of work? Uh, I didn't really have a good answer to that question. I knew a little bit of the research on motivation, so I started looking at it. And once I looked at it in a little greater depth, I was just blown away by what it said because it really turned on its head a lot of the things that I, we, uh, believed about motivation. So what is it that business leaders don't understand about motivation? Okay, there there are a number of things. One of them is Uh, I think what they don't understand is the locus of motivation. Many people think that motivation is something that one person does to another, and that's not right. (laughs) Motivation is something that people do for themselves. And so the task of running organizations, of leading teams, of doing anything where you're in a nominal position of authority and have responsibility for other people is to put those people into a context in which they can motivate themselves. You know, as a writer, motivate should not be a transitive verb. That is, it shouldn't have a direct object. No one will understand what the hell I'm talking about when I say that, but that's how I look at it. We can't think of motivate as a transitive verb. It's not. It is something that people do for themselves. It's not something that one person does to another. 
The other thing is that if you look at 50 years of research in behavioral science, it's pretty darn clear what it says. And it's this. There's a certain kind of reward we use in organizations. Social psychologists call it a, quote, controlling contingent reward. I think that's a bit cumbersome. So I like to call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. If-then reward. 50 years of social science tells us that if-then rewards are actually very effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. They work really well. Uh, The reason for that is that human beings like rewards. They like them so much, they create this kind of intense, narrowed, aroused focus. So they get us to focus narrowly. They capture our attention in a very narrow way. That's effective if you know exactly what you need to do and you can see the finish line. However, the same body of research, truly the exact same body of research that tells us that if-then rewards are effective for simple and short-term tasks, tells us that if-then rewards simply are not effective for tasks that require more creativity, more conceptual thinking, and with longer time horizons. And the mechanism is exactly the same. And those kinds of tasks, for creative tasks, for a non-obvious problem, you want to be able to see wider and farther. And so you want an expansive focus for creative tasks. You want a more distant focus for long-term tasks. And what if-then rewards do is they narrow our focus and shorten our focus. And so, I mean, it's very complicated to execute, but the principle is quite simple. If-then rewards, good for simple and short-term tasks, not so good for complex and long-term tasks. The challenge, and forgive me for, I feel like I'm about to if I haven't already started, start a rant here, (laughs) is that organizations use if-then rewards for everything rather than the one category of work where we know that they're effective. So what we should be doing is deploying the right motivators for the right kinds of tasks. Drive came out in what you refer to as the rubble of the economic collapse in which the work environment was different. So if you're thinking about present day, are you seeing companies since you wrote the book making better decisions around motivation and compensation. You know, we have a lot more purpose-driven companies. There's a lot yeah. of gamification. So is it, is it getting better or worse or has it stayed about the same? I think it's getting better, but not by a massive amount. Uh, there are many organizations that I've heard from. I don't have a comprehensive data-drenched answer to that question. But my impression, for whatever that's worth, is that, yes, there has been some slow progress. I hear about a lot of companies that have abandoned those very controlling, if-then kind of reward schemes for something that is simpler, uh, that is more transparent, uh, that is more difficult to game, uh, and that actually comports with what we know about what truly motivates people. Because what we know for these more complex tasks is that what really motivates people over the long haul is sense of autonomy and self-direction, the chance mastery, which is a chance to get better at something that matters to make progress, and purpose, knowing that what you're doing makes a contribution or makes a difference. Uh, Now, again, those are also very easy to announce. They're harder to put into action in a real organization. Any comment on United's uh, recent uh, bonus for a lottery swap? It's a ridiculous idea. I mean, it's almost like something out of the onion. I mean, this idea that, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to give people bonuses based completely on randomness and chance. I almost feel like that's the kind of thing where somebody said it as a joke because it's such a bad idea. Now, this idea of intermittent unexpected rewards is in some level a a motivator. That's the whole principle behind slot machines. But if you think about about somebody's affect when they're playing a slot machine, if you've ever seen people 
sitting in front of a slot machine. I mean, they basically are zombified there. <laughs> and, and so I don't think that is the look that you want on the faces of people working in your organization. I mean, fortunately, they, they unwound that within yeah. 24 hours. But still, what the hell were you thinking, folks? I talked a, a bit earlier about capacity building, which I think really builds the muscle for greater achievement. Based on the study you've researched and used for Drive and some of the other stuff you've written, how do you think intrinsic motivation is related to one's ability to build their capacity? I think it's essential. If you really want to build your capacity, there are going to be limits in how much you can rely on external motivators. They just, you just burn them up really quickly. So, I mean, you can think of it, you can analogize to energy. That is, extrinsic motivators are like coal. So to keep going in pursuit of capacity building, if that's the only reason you're doing it, you have to keep shoveling coal into the furnace. And you need more and more and more and more and more. Whereas intrinsic motivation is a little more like solar power in that it's renewable. It's has fewer externalities. And so... I don't know how you build genuine capacity for anything even modestly complex without a sense of intrinsic motivation. And I'm curious then, how would you think about that in terms of building capacity in others? Then is the need to create intrinsic motivation within those others? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you want to help build capacity in others, I mean, again, at some level on this, you have to turn the dial a tad and say, what can we do to put people into situations where they can build their own capacity? That can be a little bit more directive, but if you're a leader and you want people on your team, your group to build their own capacity, then these elements of autonomy, master, and purpose are essential. I mean, you have to have some amount of self-direction and willingness and volition to build your capacity. Like for instance, it's hard to help build the capacity of someone who resists that very idea, uh, who is either overly compliant or is resistant. What you need for capacity building is some amount of self-direction on the part of the person whose capacity is being built. Uh, the second point, mastery, is itself in many ways a synonym for capacity building. It's basically, are you getting better at something? Are you making progress? Are you moving forward? And then I think that we get this gets neglected in capacity building in many realms of life, whether it's business or uh, education or even sports is the purpose side of it, which is why are we doing this? All right? Why does what I do matter? Why do I build my capacity? And from a very early age, kids ask that question and adults just dismiss it. And it's a very important question. That is, you know, if you have, if you think about the, the capacity building that a teacher does, if a student asks, why are we doing algebra? Why are we reading the scarlet letter? A lot, or they ask their parents that. A lot of adults will say, be quiet and read the book, be quiet and do your homework. But if we adults don't have answers to those questions, we're doing something terribly wrong. Yeah. So let me ask you at our annual retreat last year, uh, we call it AP Summit, we decided to focus on employees' life goals and their 2018 goals, trying to make the connection how uh, success outside of work connected to the company's success. Is this a good way to bridge intrinsic motivation in the business or are personal and professional aspirations really two different things? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the person. I really do. I think it's going to depend on the person. It's going to depend on the situation. I think it's a worthy question to ask, but I don't think there's a uniform answer to it. Like, I think that Steve's answer is going to be different from Maria's. But I also think that Steve's answer today could be different from Steve's answer eight years from now. Right. So the motivation changes and we have to figure out ways to, to identify it and move along with what it is that is motivating our employees. 
And people change. Um, I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you think about it, there's a very complex interaction going on here in the workplace. You have the individual, you have the organization, and you have essentially the context, right? So those are three variables. So when you're talking about three variables, things already get a little bit complicated. But those three variables are going to be different 10 years, let's even say five years from now. Right. Uh, Maria is going to be a different person than she was. The organization is going to be a different person. And the context of everything, the economy, the political situation, whatever is going to be different. And so uh, this is why it's not like some kind of crockpot where you just set it and forget it. You have to be, you have to stay you know, on top of these things. That's why you know, running organizations, being a leader, managing teams is really, really, really hard. I mean, I don't think that we acknowledge how incredibly difficult that job is. And that's why so few people do it well, but because it's really, really hard. Yeah, what well, worked yesterday probably won't work tomorrow. As soon as you figure out you master one thing, you probably have to learn a new skill. Yeah. Well, you bring up time. And so that's a great segue into your new book, When, which is at the top of almost every chart right now. So congrats again on all the book success. Thank you. So in When, you talk about the importance of timing, both for doing things within a day and sort of across and overall across the timing of your life. I thought maybe we'd start as you do in the book when the beginnings. But, you know, one thing you didn't cover in the book, and I'd, I'd be curious to ask you, is about beginning too early. Yeah. You talked about false starts, but is there, especially in businesses, I've seen a lot of businesses. Did you come across anything around too early? Uh, It's an interesting question. I I looked at some of it and there is some research on there, not enough to make me comfortable to go out and fix it on a page and give real people real advice. So there's a Bill Gross who founded Idea Lab, which is sort of a venture capital incubator type operation. He did a study of his companies and said he found that timing was the most important factor in the success of his company. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, On your point more directly on being too early, uh, there is a little bit of research that calls into question what we learned in business school. I didn't even go to business school, but what what everybody has learned, uh, the first mover advantage. There is a theory out there saying that the first player to move within an industry or a new category or whatever has an advantage. And there's a lot of research showing that's not quite the case, that it's often the second player. Yeah. The fast follower. I, I like to call this, you know, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese, the second mouse phenomenon. Uh, because that first mouse gets crushed by the trap, leaving the cheese for the second mouse. So but again, I, on that particular issue, I'm also leery because so much of it is just pure randomness and luck. Yeah. And that is something, the randomness of life, of quote unquote success, of how things turn out is something that we human beings don't like very much. We like to ignore that as a factor in our life, but it plays a much greater role than most of us are willing to acknowledge. Once we acknowledge it, we're filled with existential dread about the randomness of existence. So we pinch that off. And instead, what we do as human beings is we look at our, any of our triumphs are due to talent and hard work, and any of our failures are due to bad luck. And any of other people's triumphs are due to luck, and any of their failures are due to their own incompetence. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And if there's one thing I learned from your writing, you like scientific proof and a lot of it. So I, I appreciate that that's still, you can't get the right data on that. But you did talk a lot about beginnings. And one of the things I took away is, you know, I've been a big advocate in my family and my company for improving morning routines as a way to yeah. build capacity and just perform better throughout the day. Yet after I read the book and based on the research, you talked about chronobiology and chronotypes, that premise may actually not hold true for everyone. So can you explain a little bit about what chronobiology is and why it's important for us to understand our chronotype? Yeah, uh, happily. And, and it, it is, I think what you're saying is true for most people, just as you put it very well, not true for everyone. So chronobiology is, is this, you know, we can just unpack the words chrono, clocks, biology, study of life. And it's basically the study of our time-based rhythms. And among the things that chronobiologists have discovered is that each of us has a chronotype. That's a more complicated word for basically, it's just like, essentially, are you more of a morning person? Are you more of an evening person? Or are you in between? So are you somebody who wakes up early and goes to sleep early? Colloquially, those are considered larks. Are you someone who wakes up very late and goes to sleep very late? colloquially an owl. And what the distribution of chronotypes tells us is that about 15% of the population are, are larks, strong larks. About 20% of the population are strong owls, which means that most of us, two thirds of us are in between. And that our chronotype actually has a big role in determining how the day unfolds, how our mood and our performance changes over the course of a day. And it's what's really the case here is, is that there's sort of a common pattern, which is true for those of us in the middle and those of us who are larks. And then the people who are evening types, owls, they're much more complicated. And the world, especially the world in the, in, 
the Western working world is really not well configured to them. And when you segment out the day into three stages, can you talk a little bit about what those stages are and how why they're important for people to understand the different tasks that would work better for people naturally, both based on, on their chronotype and then the time of day? Because I think that was really interesting discovery for me, particularly the part yes. about when you're likely to be paroled or, or not paroled. <laughs> yeah. So basically, we move through the day in three stages. You can see this in a lot of measures of mood. There's a peak, mood goes up. A trough, mood goes drops considerably. There's a recovery, mood goes back up. So peak, trough, recovery. Most of us, that is 80% of us, go through in that order. Owls, again, much more complicated, often will go through in the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. Right? So that's our pattern of mood. And, and mood is important, but our pattern of performance is also really important. And here's how that works. During the peak, which again, for most of us, is the morning. During our peak, uh, that's when we are most vigilant. That makes it the best time for analytic work. What does that mean? That means work that requires heads down, focus, attention, and energy. So that could be you know, writing a report or analyzing data or something that requires that intense kind of focus. That is the ability to bat away distractions. So we should be doing that kind of work during our peak. Uh, during the trough, big drop in mood and big drop in performance. The book is studded with all kinds of data showing how dangerous that trough can be <laughs> on the road, in a hospital, in classrooms. Um, so during that trough period, we should be doing more of our administrative work, work that doesn't require a massive amount of brain power, but which, which we have in our day-to-day -day lives. That's filling out reports or answering routine email or doing that kind of thing. And then during the recovery, which again, for most of us is the late afternoon and early evening, what we see there is a rise in mood, which is good, but, a, but no greater vigilance, which we think of as bad. But if you pair that decline vigilance with that elevated mood, then it actually makes a potent combination. Uh, that makes it a good time for uh, addressing what psychologists call insight problems. Those are problems with you know, really non-obvious solutions. They require to use one of the phrases in the literature, a flash of illuminance. Uh, and people tend to do those kinds of problems, solve those kinds of problems better during, not during the trough, but during their non-optimal times. So for owls, earlier in the day, for larks, later in the day. And so all of this suggests that we can do a lot better if we just move the right work to the right time, put our analytic work in the peak, our administrative work in the trough and our recovery work, our insight work in the recovery. And that has implications for for parents and for leaders because there, there's some things that we can control, right? What, what time of day we do them. And then there's others that we can't, such as school. You know, I think in reading the book, the one time when I was probably frustrated and kind of was yelling with you was where yeah. <laughs> the school systems, as you say, the data is just really, really clear about like, the performance on high school students starting later in the day and people having breaks, yet everyone ignores all of this data under the guise of wanting to get better test scores and do things that the data says these things don't help at all. So I, I that was... <laughs> it's completely nuts. Yeah, no, that, that's completely nuts. But I think you're right, Bob, that the, what we can do is we can... I mean, we can't control every... You know, at an individual level, organizational level, we can't control everything 
but we can make some small changes and the small changes can have a big payoff. There's research showing that time of day effects explain about 20% of the variance in how people perform on these workplace tasks. So that's a big deal, right? So, you know, if you think about what else explains that variance, let's say innate intelligence probably explains some of that variance. That's a hard thing to recalibrate all of a sudden, right? You know, you can't just like make somebody smarter. But but time of day is something that we can do something about in many cases. And so, for instance, one of the things that drives me nuts is the way that organizations schedule meetings. The only thing they care about is availability. Yeah. We don't say, hmm, is this going to be a meeting where we need analytic focus? Is this going to be a meeting where we need people to be looser and brainstorm? Is this purely an administrative meeting? Who's going to be there? Are we going to have early morning people who are better in the morning, people who are better in the evening? We don't even think about it. I mean, that literally in no meeting in North America does that issue even come up. And it should come up because it makes a material difference. And so if we just start asking those kinds of questions and bosses, you you know, talk about, let's talk about capacity building. One way to help on capacity building, if you're a leader, is to allow your team, the individuals in your team, to do their right work at the right time. So if you have, if your people are doing analytic work, and you have a bunch of morning or intermediate people who do that analytic work in the morning, as a leader, one of the you, know, you have to take a Hippocratic oath and do no harm. And one way to do harm would be to schedule a 930 meeting about that travel voucher policy for this team and suck away an hour of their best time. So there really are small things we can do to match up our chronotype, our task, and our time of day. Yeah, I think a lot of people in our company have actually probably happened upon this in the morning, they put a block called GSD on their calendar, which is get bleep done. And that's yeah. uninterruptible time. That's great. And we've synced a lot of it. So a lot of it have it at the same time. And we've determined that if I can have those two to three hours and get my cognitive, I do my reading and my writing and my answering to things, then I can move into meetings and stuff in the afternoon. So that that's helpful because we have the flexibility to do it. But I assume that on the flip side, if you want a night watchman for your plant, you probably want a night owl right? That's when you want that person to be vigilant. I, the, the mood needs to yeah. fit the job at that point. Right. Absolutely. You talk a lot about, you know, and a point you made really strongly was that organizations, particularly schools or companies, they're so quick to solve a what problem, but not a when problem. So if, if we knew yeah, that, exactly. if we knew that smoke in the building in the morning, you know, hurt test scores by 20%, we would fix that in, in five minutes. But, <laughs> Exactly. But when the data says that waking people up an hour early has the same result, no one seems interested in changing. So what, it seems like that was one of the main messages of the book. Has that, has it had an impact? No. Um, <laughs> but no, oh, I, should, I shouldn't say no. I should say not yet. Uh, because again, there is this notion that questions of when, as exactly as you said, questions of when are less important than questions of what. And just empirically, that's not true. Let's go back to test scores. What you see, I mean, I'll just give you two data points here. There's an important study out of Denmark showing that kids who took tests, standardized tests in the afternoon versus kids who took standardized tests in the morning, kids who took tests in the afternoon scored as if they'd missed two weeks of school, period. They do worse. There's research out of the LA Unified School District showing that kids who have math in the morning have higher GPAs and higher test scores than kids who have math later in the day. So it makes a material difference. But let's be clear here. I'm not saying that when people do stuff is more important than what people do or how they do it or who they do it with. 
But I'm saying it's as important. And if we don't start taking those when questions seriously, we're going to continue to make mistakes. I guess the good news is that any kind of leader who does take these when questions seriously, who knows that they have a material effect on performance, is going to outperform our peers. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a field, frankly, that you're opening up for leaders to even consider that uh, the extra money that they were putting into training or new programs or things that may not be necessary, it may be taking a more individualized approach to each person and, and seeing when things work for them and when things work for the company overall. And you make a very good point about its cost effectiveness. So we're not, we're just, you know, we're talking about having people do different things at different times. We're not talking about buying them new equipment. We're not talking about sending them to an expensive training program. We're not talking about boosting their salary. We're talking about letting them match up when they do their work with the right time for them to do that work. Yeah, it just occurred to me as we're talking about this, you know, if we run a training program for new employees from three to five at the end of the day, we're probably going to get 25% less retention than if we spent the same amount of money at at 9 a.m. in the morning. It depends on what kind of training. If it's a more analytic training, you know, what you should do is you should measure people's chronotypes and then um, have the, the more, the, you know, 80% of them do it in the morning and the, the owls do it later in the day. I will suggest that, but we do so many personality testing that I might get a lot of, <laughs> a lot of dirty looks when Although I Although you can do the chrono, you can do the chronotype test in, you know, 40 seconds. Yeah. No, actually, I, I would actually would like to do that and overlay it on some of our other tests and see what correlation there are to some of the personality types. Yeah. There are, there are, I mean, there, in the literature, there are correlations between chronotypes and personality factors big time. So you have, um, particularly on like the, on the so-called big five, you know, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, you see in general, uh, larks much more extroverted, much more conscientious than owls. Again, recognizing that most of us are in the middle, but you have owls higher on, on neuroticism, higher on various kinds of problematic behaviors, whether it's, you know, addiction or uh, I don't want to call it behavior, but, but higher on things like addiction and depression, uh, but also higher on intelligence tests. So there are personality differences that are associated with these chronotypes. Yeah, I'm going to take that as a to-do. And uh, I might look at sure. Disc or Myers-Briggs. I will, I will let you know what I, what I find, but I think that's interesting. You know, the more we do these tests, we see a lot of overlap. And I think it starts to, it starts to really just emphasize for people that they are who they are and, and trying to figure out who that is and then align everything around them seems to produce the best performance. So let's take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back uh, to talk more with Daniel Pink. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Keen, and Adam Grant, 
and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com. All right, welcome back, Dan. And I want to transition a little bit into the next part of the book that I made a lot of notes on, and that was sort of about teams and how teams synchronize. Um, You write some interesting research about how different types of teams come together. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that from you. Yeah, well, I was looking at in this case was literally that synchronization. It wasn't just sort of teams in general. It was how do teams coordinate with each other in time? And that's part of what teams do. And the one group that I looked at were these folks in India called Dabawalas, who are these guys, almost always men, who do something pretty remarkable. They pick up homemade lunches at people's apartments in Mumbai, India, and then deliver those homemade lunches to those families' loved ones in downtown Mumbai, in the office buildings throughout downtown Mumbai, uh, which is maybe 20 miles away. Uh, and they, these double wallows do this every single day. They deliver 200,000 lunches every day. They do it without errors, uh, so much so that uh, FedEx has studied them. UPS has studied them. There's a Harvard Business School case study about them. Uh, they do it with this, this accuracy, 200,000 lunches every day at high levels of accuracy. And amazingly, they do it without barcodes, without GPS, without technology of any kind. How are they able to synchronize? And so that was one of the puzzles that I was trying to solve. And uh, it turns out that when you look at how groups synchronize in time, uh, rowing teams, choirs, uh, there are a set of core principles that are somewhat counterintuitive, but endlessly interesting. I've been thinking about this in light of the NCAA tournament, right? Because there's some data around the more the teams touch each other and high five and come oh, in yeah, contact, yeah, yeah. That, that they perform better. Oh, yeah. So one of the elements of it is a sense of belonging. And this is true in a lot of the research on teams, that that belongingness, not only in terms of synchronization, but in any kind of team, belongingness is a huge factor in which teams flourish and which teams flounder. And the way that belongingness happens is through, I mean, it's almost, um, you know, anthropological. It's it's yeah. through, you know, shared rituals. It's through touch. Uh, and the study you're talking about showed that that if, if you have a group of pe- if you have people watch videos of basketball games and simply touch high fives, low fives, chest bumps, fist bumps, whatever, uh, and count those kinds of touches, that then that actually ends up being predictive of which teams are going to succeed later in the season. But belongingness is fostered with you know, all kinds of things: shared jokes, uh, shared language is is incredibly important, uh, even clothing, uh, and so any kind of belongingness cues are essential in in team coordination and team synchronization. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, it's really, it, it was interesting. And I, I read it right before the tournament. So I, I, I was watching this and I, I yeah. it, it, right. It's it, for some teams, it's just a feeling that, you know, with a Loyola Chicago or making their run, it, it really is. It, it, it's interesting. I'm sure the, uh, there's a lot of studies being done on these games, probably a lot more than I, than I realize. Probably, probably. I mean, the other thing is just to, you know, it's like in the, especially in the NCAA tournament is there's also just a huge degree of randomness too. Yeah. So I'd hate to extrapolate no. too many. <laughs> I hate to extrapolate from, from too much, especially since in my family bracket, I finished in last place. Yeah. It wasn't pretty, but it wasn't pretty for most people this year. So the, no. the midpoint, you know, key, we got beginnings, ends, midpoints often overlooked. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was you're talking about midpoints in relation to teams and that there were some studies mm. where when teams were given a certain amount of time, whether that was a day or a week or a month or six months to solve the problem, most of their urgency and cohesion sort of happened right at the midpoint. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So this is the research of Connie Gersick, who you know, had an inkling about how teams actually operate. And the prevailing view until that time was that teams start and they make steady progress all the way through to the end. Maybe not perfectly steady, but sort of a, you know, a, a, an overall slope upward to from beginning to end. And what she found was a v- dramatically different pattern uh, that in, at the beginning, teams did very, very little. There's a lot of status seeking and other kinds of behavior like that, but they do very, very little. And she said it wasn't until a certain moment when teams threw off the old routines, you know, really got going. And, and invariably, she found that that moment when teams really got kicking was the midpoint. So it was weird. You know, they give a team 34 days to do a project, they get started on earnest on day 17. Uh, give a team nine days, they get started in earnest on day five. Uh, she even did some research, experimental research, giving teams an hour, and there was always this moment where someone said, "Oh my God, we, you know, we're halfway done. We got to get going," and that occurred between the 29th and 31st minute. And so there's something about reaching that midpoint that seems to be where, where people and, and 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 the way she did her research is she videotaped and audiotaped a lot of these team encounters, and invariably there was someone who said something along the lines of, "Oh my gosh, we're halfway done. We got to get moving." And so there's something about that midpoint that can be galvanizing. You know, I read that and thinking about it as a business leader and a company, I was thinking, should we be giving our teams less time to get to the decision if they're not going to get any urgency until the halfway point and maybe breaking it up into smaller things? Is there any, any, any research on that? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, here's the thing. That, so that's possible. That's certainly possible. The other thing that's possible is, and you see this in a little bit of the research on productive procrastination, it, there's some kinds of procrastination that are productive, it, that it could be that there's something happening during that first half that is akin to incubation, that it doesn't show on the surface as, as activity in progress, but something essential is happening then. But it'd be fascinating to test. Right, it might be it might be an essential part of the process, and if it's a year task, then it's a year's. But work. if you gave if you gave that team saying, "Hey, you know, oh, this task really only takes seventeen days," 
you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you 17 days. Maybe they get started on day eight and a half and then end up failing. Who knows? Maybe, so maybe it's the other way. Maybe if a task requires 17 days, a team needs 34 days to get it done. Yeah. It's worth testing. Yeah, no, it'd be fast. It's fascinating. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some, obviously there's going to be some variance based on the kind of team and, and whatnot. I think what's interesting is that what Gersick's research showed is that our intuitions about these patterns were dead wrong. And so the analogy that she used, she actually used an analogy from evolution, where the prevailing view in, evo in evolutionary theory until the early 1970s was that, yeah, species evolved in this kind of steady, predictable way. And what revolutionized that field was an insight from two paleontologists who found, that's not how it goes. Basically, you have these long periods of stasis followed by periods of intense activity, uh, what they called punctuated equilibrium. That is, you have equilibrium and then a huge burst of punctuation. And Gersick was saying that teams operate in that way too. It just so happens that the punctuation mark occurs at the middle. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about middle in terms of the micro sense, but if we turn quickly to the macro sense, you write a lot about the timing of big events in our lives, such as getting married, writing a book, starting a business. Does life <laughs> have sort of the same dynamic as an individual day? Does it follow most of the same principles? Well, not, uh, I, I don't know if it has the same, it doesn't have the same rhythm as the hidden pattern of a single day, but there are rhythms and shapes and patterns over lifetimes, big time. So, I mean, one of them has to do with midpoints. There is uh, across many, many countries, literally dozens of countries, there is what scholars call a U-shaped curve of happiness, meaning that in the middle of our lives, it's not like the bottom falls out. There's, there's no evidence of the so-called midlife crisis. But what you do see is a slight dip. So people are reasonably happy in their 20s and 30s. They begin to decline in their 40s and their 50s. They really reach bottom. And then over time, they begin to get happier and happier. And so there's a U-shaped curve for happiness and well-being. There are other kinds of patterns, too, dealing with over time with, um, I, I, you know, I think are quite interesting with the size of people's social networks and what they prioritize and things like that. And so, again, I think the meta point here is that we have to recognize that these temporal forces have an effect in the course of a day, hugely, but even in the course of a life, uh, that much of our lives are episodic and episodes, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career, a particular job, episodes have beginnings, middles, and ends. And each of those three things, beginnings, middles, and ends, exerts a different effect on our behavior. And for some people, it seems like the middle is really motivating, right? They have the, you know, I got to make something of my life. And then for others, it, it, the rut is, is bigger and, and it goes in a, in a different direction. Is there anything that leads people down one path or the other? Well, one of the things that's come out in some of the research is that, uh, and we can go back to teams here for a moment and, and back to basketball, is that it's interesting to study basketball as a way to study midpoints uh, because basketball, unlike most enterprises, has an announced midpoint with its own name and set of rituals at halftime. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have that in other parts of our, you don't have that in careers or relationships or, you know, anything like that. It's like, it's not like you have a relationship with someone and at some point the buzzer goes, <clears throat> you know, and it's like, okay, we're at halftime now, you know. According to your research, it would probably help, though, get some motivation. But it's it, it might. 
it might. But, but basketball does have that explicit halftime. We, we have midpoints everywhere. I mean, midpoints are ubiquitous. They're just implicit rather than explicit. They're hidden from our view rather than staring us in the face. And so in basketball, and this is some research of Jonah Berger at Penn and Devin Pope at the University of Chicago, they found that uh, in general, the team that has a lead at halftime is more likely to win the game, which, you know, it doesn't require sophisticated mathematical acumen, you know, right? A team that's ahead at halftime is more likely to win, right? They're ahead and the game's half over. And also the fact that they're ahead might mean that they have better players. But there's an exception to this rule. And the exception is that teams that were behind by one point are more likely to win. Being behind by one was more advantage than advantageous than being ahead by one. Being behind by one was equivalent to being ahead by two. So what's going on there? And in subsequent experimental research, because again, in basketball scores, you know, if you look at the score at halftime and compare it to the score at the end of the game, all you're seeing is correlation. You can't tell why it's happening. You can't tell what's causing it. But in experimental settings, you can set up experiments to try to isolate the cause. And what they found and others have found is, is that being slightly behind at the middle is very motivating. It's very galvanizing. When we're way behind at the middle, we can give up. When we're way ahead, we can get complacent. But when we're a little bit behind, it looks like people really, really bring it. And so for that person in, in midlife, one of the things that he or she can do is recognize midpoints and they have this dual effect. Sometimes they make us wake up, other times they get us to roll over. But actually imagine, hey, I'm a little bit behind right now. And that can be a form of motivation. It's interesting. So I, I wonder how much that parallels to the person, right? If they feel like they're way behind in life, maybe while well, I'm just, you know, wallowing their sorrow. And if they're a little behind, it's, it's motivating. And that, that leads us into endings. And, you know, you talked a lot about, about endings and how important they are. I think two takeaways I took was if you're planning a vacation, plan something really good at the end <laughs> and it will improve your whole memory of the vacation. But, but in it's terms of- true, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of experiences, you know, a conference or something like that, I guess you got to make sure your closer is really, really good. Oh, yeah. Oh, the endings of any kind of experience are hugely important. On, on another, I mean, there's so much research on this. Endings help us encode entire experiences. And by encode, I mean, they help us evaluate and then record experiences. So there's research showing that, you know, that how a person was in the last year of his life dramatically shapes how people remember the entirety of the life. Uh, and so, you know, you see it in uh, consumer transactions. You can see this anecdotally on Yelp. I mean, go to Yelp reviews of restaurants and look <laughs> at how many Yelp reviews on restaurants talk about what happened at the end of the meal. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of research on this and endings have a disproportionate effect on how we encode experiences. And once again, as with the hidden pattern of the day, we're not aware and intentional about that. And, and so I think that organizations can do a much better, and all the things that you mentioned, Bob, of, of consumer transactions or conferences or family vacations or any kind of experience to really be thoughtful and intentional about uh, having a great end. If I, had, I make you choose between your two babies here, if you had to either start poorly, you know, you had to avoid starting poorly or ending well, which do you think would have an overall bigger impact? It's a great question. I think it's going to depend, though, on what the enterprise is. Yeah. So there's some cases where getting off to a big beginning disadvantages you for so long that uh, a strong ending doesn't um, doesn't really correct things. So I think it's going to depend on whether you're talking about a career or whether you're talking about a 
Uh, if you're talking about something more like a, a customer transaction or that kind of experience, I'm going to put my money on the ending. So the shorter the duration, the more impact probably the ending has, right? Uh, it's a good question. I would guess so. I'm not certain. Okay. I'll give you some homework then on, on that one. Hey, well, thanks. I, wait, well, I would assume that, yeah, because the beginning and end are close to each other. So I, the, the beginning can't really hurt you There's for that long. Yeah. 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 That's probably right. I mean, one of the pieces of research that I wrote about in terms of beginnings is the, the monumental difference between graduating in a recession, yeah. graduating from college in a recession and graduating from college in a boom economy. Um, you know, that difference. So if you've got, uh, you know, Susie and, and Esther who graduate from college, you know, let's say same college, same major, same level of ability, but Susie graduates in a recession and Esther graduates in a boom economy, that's going to show up in their wages 20 years later. That is 20 years into her career, Esther is going to be on average making more money than Susie, uh, even though she's similar in ability and background and everything else. And the reason has to do with she just got off to a, a better start. So these beginnings have a, especially in, this, in that domain, have a monumental effect on how things turn out for people. Yeah, and, you, and your recommendation was if you have a bad beginning, try any way you can to to start over, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Different ways of hitting the reset button. Well, taking a personal perspective, I'm curious, what is a timing mistake that you've made, either personally or professionally, that you learned the most from? Wow, there are a lot of them. I mean, I really changed my view, my ways on a lot of this stuff. So I'm much more deliberate about what work I do when I do it and when I do it. And so I probably I made some mistakes about not being deliberate enough and putting my analytic work at a certain time of the day and my insight work at another time of day. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about breaks. And so I may, you know, I, I spent 50 years rarely taking breaks, which turns out to be a bad idea. Um, and uh, although I think that the, the most, the most at the level of nitty gritty is delivering good news and bad news. Uh, I would always, so if you think, if you say to somebody, I've got good news and bad news, uh, the question becomes, which do you deliver first? Do you deliver the good news first or the bad news? And I always gave the good news first uh, because for a whole host of reasons. You know, you want to lay down a cushion beforehand so you don't seem like a total jerk. Uh, uh, I was concerned that if you start negative, people will just turn off on you. They won't even listen to the rest. Uh, it's also just uncomfortable giving bad news for a lot of us. So you want to ease your way into it. And that turns out to be flatly wrong. Uh, there's interesting research out there showing that the vast, vast, vast majority of people, when they're on the receiving end of good news and bad news, want the bad news first. They want the bad news first and the good news next, because it's another, goes back to this one other principle of endings, which is that given a choice, human beings prefer endings that elevate. We prefer rising sequences to declining sequences. So. Uh, so throughout my life, I'd always given the good news first and then the bad news. And now I've completely changed my way. I give the bad news first and then the good news. I also noticed you're a big convert to the nappuccino. Well, I'm a big, I'm a convert to <laughs> napping because I was never a big napper. When I took naps before, I would wake up feeling terrible. And what I realized among the errors of my ways was that uh, the ideal nap is much shorter than I would have imagined. It's a nap between 10 and 20 minutes long. I, I don't do this every day, but there are many, there are days, several days when I will take that 10 to 20 minute nap, a way to get a boost out of it is to have a cup of coffee first, which sounds weird, but it takes about 25 minutes for coffee to get into our bloodstream. So if you have a cup of coffee and then go to take a nap, let's say you 
you nap for 20 minutes or, you know, let's say you, you lie down and it takes you six or seven minutes to fall asleep and you nap for 15 minutes, you know, when you're waking up after 25 minutes, that caffeine begins hitting your system, which gives you an extra boost. But again, the key thing here on naps, to my surprise, was that the very best naps are extraordinarily short between 10 and 20 minutes. Beyond that, you begin to accumulate what's called sleep inertia, which is that sort of groggy, boggy oatmeal in the head feeling that you get sometimes from naps. And in order to get the benefit of the nap, you have to dig your way out of that, which can be time consuming. Well, you did a great infographic of the Nappuccino. So we will link to that in the show notes so that people who oh, are, people can see the recipe <laughs> who want to participate in it. <laughs> so uh, last question, as much as I could go on forever, you have multiple best-selling books. And I know there are a lot of aspiring writers out there. And I'm curious, what have you found to be your best time to write a book, both in the macro sense and in the micro sense within a day? Yeah, let me take the micro side first. Uh, for me, as someone who is much more lark than Al, I do my, remember, we go peak drop recovery. And so I should be doing my analytic work during the peak, which means that I should be doing my writing during the peak during the morning. And in response to this research early on, I, I really did change my way. So I write, I, I'd done this to some extent, but I, I became much more rigid about it after having absorbed a lot of this research. So I do uh, all of my writing in the morning because I know that's one of my, my best. And the only way to do that is to clear the decks, to eliminate all the other stuff. So try not to even look at email. Certainly don't, don't answer the phone. This often don't even bring my phone into the office. Uh, so you have that sequestered time to do your heads down analytic work in the morning. So that's the the micro. In terms of the macro, you know, that's a harder one. Um, on the commercial side of it, you just don't know. It's like, you know, like in stocks, it's very hard to time the market. Sometimes your, your timing on a book, especially is right. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes your idea is, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier. So, you know, sometimes your idea is, as we used to say in politics, a little ahead of the voters. <laughs> sometimes it's too late. And, you know, and other times it's just, you know, you just don't know for instance, um, every once in a while, and it's hard to foresee, there are moments, weeks or months where there's just like a gazillion books coming out and everybody is just battling each other not to be thrown off the rowboat. And there's not much one can do about that. In terms of when to write a book, I, I don't think there's a hard and fast set of rules about that. To me, the hard and fast rule would be for any aspiring writer out there is, you know, talk to people who've written books and understand just how freaking hard it is to write a book. Uh, not that it requires massive intelligence, obviously it doesn't if I've done it, but it requires a massive amount of work, it requires a massive amount of doggedness, it requires a massive amount of persistence and just putting your butt into a seat. And a lot of the times the writing of a book is just totally not fun. I mean, just dreary and horrid. And so you really have to ask yourself what, you know, whether you really want to write that book. And the other thing is, is that, and I see this mistake made by a lot of journalists, is that they'll write an article that gets some attention and they'll immediately be so seduced by the attention that they get from that, that they go to write a book about it. And if you're going to write a book, you have to be in love with your idea. You have to be willing to spend a huge amount of time on it. I mean, I just did an interview for a book that I wrote 17 years ago, right? So I'm still living with that thing yeah. that I did 17 years ago. And if it wasn't something that I really liked, I would be miserable. So there are a few ideas 
and concepts, stories, whatever that you you know you want to go out on a few dates with, but there are very few who you want to go steady with and, and almost none that you want to get married to. So you have to be very, very selective on that front. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to have a moment, but a, a movement is a lot, a lot more work and requires a lot, a lot of sustained effort. Well said. Exactly. Exactly. Daniel, I really enjoy your books and your thinking. Please keep on writing them. And thanks for taking the time to dig through all this research with me, make sense of it and see how we can apply it in practical ways in our life. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. So for our listeners out there, we'll include the show notes from this episode on our site, as well as Daniel's website interviews he's done, his TED Talk, and some other insightful resources and links for you. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.